Hello, we are the Edgy Futurists. I'm Dan Fitzpatrick. I'm Ben Whitaker. And I'm Stephen Hope. The podcast by educators for educators, the Edgy Futurist Podcast. Hello and welcome to this live recording of the Edgy Futurist Podcast. It's great that you can join us this evening. Uh, we've got a very special guest who's joining us today and we can't wait to get into that conversation. Um, you can, as always, leave us some comments if you're listening live. I appreciate a lot of you might be listening to this recorded. Um, but if you're listening live, we are on YouTube, so you can leave your comment in there and also through Periscope on Twitter. And we've just started linking up to Facebook as well. So if you're watching on Facebook, you can leave a comment there. That'll come through to us and we'll put your questions and your comments to our guest as we go through the show. Uh, yeah, we have well over 150 podcast episodes. I don't know when we're going to get start saying we've got over 160. It must be soon. Uh, you can go find us at edgyfuturist.com. Uh, please subscribe uh, using your podcast app. Uh, you can subscribe using the YouTube channel um, and follow some and look after some of our recent broadcasts with Abdul Chohan and Summer Howarth, amongst many, many more. Another little reminder too, you can sign up for our annual awards event on the 10th of July. That's in partnership with NetSupport and C-Learning. Go over to awards.edgyfuturist.com and you can also now vote. We've just found out we've got, as of the time of the recording of this on the 11th of July, we've got now over 1,500 votes uh, and it looks like we're almost at 200 delegates for the day. So very, very exciting. If you haven't done so already, please join us for that. Yeah, so as you can see, below me is our guest, and we are joined by Janelle Aldred. Janelle is communications professional and has worked in media for over 10 years. I don't know. Janelle. <laughs> I, I definitely do. COVID is, is ruining these bags, you know, <laughs> horrific. Um, Janelle has worked most recently as a freelance newsreader uh, for ITN. Uh, she's worked uh, for the BBC, ITV and ITN Productions after gaining a master's degree in broadcast journalism. Yeah, so we're really excited that Janelle will also be joining us as a co-host for the new Next or Never Normal event um, in partnership with C-Learning and the Warwickshire College Group online on the 24th of June. So that's going to be good where we're hoping to learn how to present something from <laughs> Janelle. You can follow Janelle on Twitter at Janelle Aldred. The podcast by educators, for educators, the Edu Futurist Podcast. So, good evening, Janelle. How are we doing? Good, thank you. Good. My eyebrows look a bit like caterpillars, so everyone just ignore that. But now I've drawn attention to it, so now we're not going to. But I'm good. Well, <laughs> me and Ben look like characters from Guess Who, I suppose. So what I'm having to, I've, I've got these well, big no, earphones that, that on. looks more like a guy from Guess Who. Guess Who. Which, on. which, which one? Which one? Uh, what with the you look like Fred. Do you look like Fred? Fred? <laughs> I don't even know. I'm sorry, I'm already causing chaos. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, thing before I joined in. Sorry. This, th these headphones are covering up the fact that my, my I look like Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber and these glasses are covering up these horrific unibrow. So uh, we will get into... Look, so... We, we've, we've kind of followed a pattern in terms of what does, and we've had a bit of a chat before, and what does uh, life uh, during COVID and lockdown look uh, like for you then at the moment? Oh, well, all my family live in Birmingham and I live in London. So that's the first thing. And I thankfully live near a massive park. So I've COVID life is in, um, lots of intermittent exercising. I know people are doing intermittent fasting. I'm doing intermittent exercise, which means that sometimes I'm really on it and then complete starvation of exercise in between. So that's what COVID life looks like for me. Um, 
recently signed a book deal, so I'm working on that. Um, that's an uphill climb. And also just working on a few other projects, a few other media projects. So yeah, COVID and doing things like this, which is exciting and a bit out of my normal space, but something that I'm super passionate about. So yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. And you mentioned there that uh, we were going to be co-hosting, actually yeah. then, co-hosting this uh, conference in two weeks' time. Uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be great. Are you looking forward to it? I am looking forward to it. You know, I'm I'm so passionate about education. Like genuinely, I'm I'm so passionate. It is the way of social mobility. I'm, a, I'm massively into social justice, and education is the way that that can happen for so many people who are not currently in the, the position they want to be in. So anything that I can be in that's talking about how do we look to the future, how do we decide who we are, who we want to be, that is like massively interesting to me. So yeah. It's kind of like you, uh, you've just given a, maybe a bit of a spiel for the podcast. Future <laughs> education, social justice, they're the things that we talk about quite a lot. Uh, and we'll, we'll yeah, probably I get in. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should. Maybe you should. Uh, maybe we, what we could do is we could get David Price playing on the piano. And you, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, no, it's, it's really great to have you on. And um, and we're excited for that event because obviously we're talking about the, the new normal. Um, and uh, or the next normal or the never normal, whatever. However, we're trying to work this out because we're in a world now that we've probably never seen before. And uh, no comment about caterpillars. Apparently, some people <laughs> saying no comment. Oh, wow. about caterpillars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, I think I think we should we should uh, probably we we titled this podcast communicating for change and obviously your background is in communications and broadcast journalism um i wonder whether you could talk to us about like where that passion for communication comes from and how that maybe leads to change well i have always been a keen talker as my parents will tell you massively into talking and, and interestingly massively into news so the first bit of news i really interacted we were living in sheffield at the time and we just got sky exciting time sky had come to the uk sky news 24-hour rolling news and oj simpson was racing down the highway and you know i was absolutely gripped at that time of of just seeing justice unfold in a sense so i don't know if there was justice that's not for me to say but just seeing that whole trial and watching that trial unfold and seeing how people argued and also seeing how different it was from what we have in this country, although we didn't really see much of it, but just even seeing inside a court and seeing stories being told and narratives being weaved. And that just really interested me because I'm also a really avid reader. So my older sister taught me to read before I even started school. So I was like a really proficient reader when I started and I would just devour books and my dad had an extensive library and I was reading books of everything from Shakespeare to the Reader's Digest to the Reader's Digest novels to Martin Luther King's um, biography, Malcolm X's biography. So I was reading lots of different books about lots of different spaces in life and fiction. I was reading about the Russian Revolution and so I just had a thing for stories but I didn't actually decide to become a journalist till I was in my 20s. So I kind of went to college, left, wasn't really very inspired by what was going on there, went and got a job. And actually it was just like a life event, a life bereavement that then put me back onto the education path, which is when I went to London College of Fashion. So I think I just was always interested in stories, in reading, in knowing things. I was very curious. I would sit outside my dad's office, listen to all his phone calls when he worked from home. I was just always interested in how do people communicate? 
But at that age, I wouldn't have known what that was. So now that I'm older, then you just fast forward and someone said, you should think about being a journalist. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll go and research that. And then, then I ended up, you know, doing what I do. Yeah, and and, and we we always we don't ask questions on the podcast. That everybody that's listened will will know that it's just about going down. But I'm really interested in terms of that communication. And like teachers, uh, maybe the media's taken a bit of a bashing during recent times. And, and and I don't want to go off topic, but how do you feel about that element in terms of that shackled communication and and what we're seeing at the minute? Um, I'd, I'd really like, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Well, I think some of some of the criticism is well. Like, you know, I, 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 I never want to defend the indefensible. And I think some of the criticism is actually deserved that we have right now. You know, when I think of when I was studying journalism and what they taught us was, you know, journalism is the fourth estate. It's the voice of the people. You are in the rooms where the public cannot be. So you are the voice of the public to power. And for me, that is what journalism is about and you can see that we are moving far away from that and I'm not going to bore you with all the reasons why I think but I think there are a couple of critical things that have brought us to the place where we are one of them being conversely what I love 24-hour rolling news I think 24-hour rolling news in the beginning of a constant need to fill a news cycle is partly to blame for the need to sensationalize and and add things that are tantalizing and titillating because actually when it's just going on all day how do you punctuate the time? So you have to add interest. So if it's a, you don't have a good news day, how do you make the boring interesting? You sensationalize it. And I in with that, then came the internet and clickbaits and clicks and algorithms and all of these things that I think have put us even further down a path. So at one point when I uh, an agent approached me and they were like, oh, you know, we your new talent, we'd like to talk to you but you don't really doing enough on social media. You need to like be making more content and doing more. And for me, I was like, well, what do you want me to do? So for me, that's the odd thing because you have to feed this beast. So what am I gonna feed it with if there's nothing natural? It's just gonna be made up stuff or things that seem interesting or more interesting than they actually are. And so that's why I think journalism has kind of come down that route because you have a lot of presenters, I won't name them, you'll have your own opinions, but you have presenters with shows or profiles to build and maintain. So when they're asking a question in the COVID briefing, for example, they're not just thinking about their audience, they're thinking about their social media, they're thinking about the clip for their news package. Of course, that's gonna then color what you ask because it needs to be something interesting. Whereas actually maybe what needs to be asked in that moment is something useful. And so that is where I think why some of the reasons why we got into this brand of personality 24-hour social media thing which is why now people are not asking the questions the public really want to be asked yeah i really love have you seen um is it simon mccoy on the bbc how he he kind of cuts through that he's very like i remember watching was it last year the year before one of the there was a royal baby being born and he was stood outside the hospital <laughs> and, uh, and it went it went back to him probably for the hundredth time for that hour to see mm -hmm. if there was any development and he, and he i think he was just like yeah no there's there's nothing <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, yeah I'm just stood outside of a hospital doing nothing uh, <laughs> but uh, i i guess it I think it's a really. I think we could this this one topic here. We could, I know we want to go on and talk about loads of other things, but we could probably drill down into this topic for hours. But it really fascinates me because I think there's been a very like newspapers of of kind of since since newspapers came came about, they've always been politically aligned. 
However, we we're starting to see that within within broadcast media as well, and especially in like a stalwart like the BBC. Up until up until what five years ago, maybe nobody would have questioned the the bias of the BBC. Yeah. But now we see, like the other day, there was Emily Maitlis and and that yeah. whole controversy there about how she'd she'd um, done it, done a, her monologue at the start of the show was was kind of criticizing uh, government action, and and then there was all that controversy of had she had the BBC taken her off air the next day um and what was going on there and then was it Naga Munchetti uh was was chastised last year uh and and there's there's so much political um pull within even a what 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 I, I hope is still an, an unbiased media platform yeah it's just I think, it's, I think the first problem is we want it to be unbiased and people by their nature are biased <laughs> so <laughs> So in the very first instance, you're trying to create something that is very hard for it to be. And knowing also that people recruit in their own image and recruit people who share similar values, then of course you are creating some kind of bias, even if you don't mean to. And what it would take is a really strong leader to make sure they're recruiting people that don't share the same values, so that you can, that the way that human nature is and the love we have for power makes all of these things really tricky. So we're really trying to build something in a vacuum. And I think before, when we saw news as more dispassionate, um, and like I said, again, it goes back to 24-hour news cycle on the media and the social media, because before you didn't have to try and do anything. The news came on, it was the main source, only source of news, like through the day. There was no competition. Now they've got all this competition. So that then people try to find ways to be not like what's online. So that means personality. And so then it's kind of a bit of a slippery slope. And with the government that we have that don't love the press so much, it's not a surprise to the press kind of leaning away from them too, because there's now this big chasm. So yeah, we could talk about this all day. And I think it is actually fascinating when you really start to break down why is this happening? But ultimately, I think we I don't I doubt we'll return to the very straight news that we had before. I don't think that's the future. Um, I don't think it's actually what people want. And I think when the BBC Charter comes around again, depending on how much money people get, I think we might see some changes, is my personal opinion. Yeah, I think I think it's it's interesting, Marina. We're a similar page and uh, even even um even concepts around social media, like in, in that that whole echo chamber and and what that does, and we, we we've had that conversation before. That actually become it becomes very the even the algorithm is supposed to sensationalize. Uh, so you see the things that provoke you, either to good or bad, which is just it's it, it crazy, isn't it? I listen to Joe Rogan talking about that quite a lot. He's a, he's super critical of that. He had the guys off of Twitter as well talking the same way about about why we seeing what we're seeing. Is that because of something else? I wonder if the, where the what we maybe got to learn from that for education. And I know that uh, look at look at me, Trevor. Bring it. This never happens. It's usually, it's usually me taking off on a tangent somewhere. Uh, uh, but I, I, from an education point of view, in terms of like communication and. Um, and, and bias and under an awareness of bias and, and all that kind of stuff. I wonder what, what there is, what, what you think maybe is a lessons to learn from that. I think there's so much to learn from that because interestingly, because I met you guys, because I came, dropped along to the virtual classroom um, and, you know, was listening to what everyone was saying. And as an outsider, I find it massively fascinating because I am interested in stories and storytelling. And there's all this stuff going on. 
and how do people get to know? Because you, in the world of education, for most people, we just don't have a clue. We don't, we don't know what teachers think. We know what the union thinks. We know what the government thinks. We know what we think. And there's this massive gap in information of the, the actual educators. We don't know really what they think all the time, unless there's a strike or something. We don't actually know how do teachers feel about the curriculum? Do they think it's working? Do they think it's diver diverse enough? You know, there's a big conversation now around decolonizing de education. And so we'll hear about things like this, but the issue when we hear about things like this is we're hearing about one issue in isolation rather than the context of the whole piece. Um, so in when I was running a TV channel, um, I used to talk a lot to presenters about their shows and different things. And I would always remind them that you are thinking about your show. I'm thinking about the body of work. I'm thinking about the whole picture. How does this day hang together? And so it's hard not to get into biases and silos because when you're in your goldfish bowl, your world, everything in that goldfish bowl becomes massively important to the people in the bowl. But to everyone else outside, what's going on in there is, is, a, is a kind of no relevance. And, and so you get big fish in this bowl who are like, we think this. And sometimes you see car crashes on media, or you see a story or you see a PR campaign. You think, how the heck did that even get past? Because everyone's in the bowl drinking the same water. It's the culture. It's the air that we breathe. And so everyone is hooked onto something that's a good idea, which is a terrible idea. And if you just brought in one outsider to say, what do you think of this? it would pretty soon be blown to smithereens, but we don't tend to do that. So we tend to work in our goldfish bowls so that when there's nothing new coming in and if everyone is thinking the same thing, then no one's thinking. So if everyone thinks this is great and no one even has one suggestion, that's your first clue that there's like a massive problem going on here because in, a, in any group of people, anyone outside of you is other. So there should at least be someone saying, but have we thought about this? And if we haven't, then we need to question our rooms, who's in them, and do we have enough people thinking differently? If that answers the question. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. And I think that whole element, and I suppose in, in, the, in the college I work in, and I'm sure the, the guys will share it in terms of that, element of students being able to critically analyze being able to understand review and look at what actually is fake news and uh, that whole thing of donald trump now just getting vetted on on social media bringing it back to that and all of that is a great concept around actually anybody can say anything but actually is it factual and where does it come from and and i read something around a lot of fake news is actually stemmed from somebody reading it and then putting it into a WhatsApp group or a social group. And because they're seeing it from somebody they know, they associate yeah. that with truth. And I don't know. And, and that fake news element is, 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 is such a nice insight um, for organize, for colleges, especially around referencing. And, I and think those the question is, is that fake? <laughs> um, I'd, I'd like... That's the question. Is there fake education? Like, how, how do we know what we're doing is true, correct, and right? The thing about looking at new next normal is, is what we're doing the right thing when we when we stack up the, the facts, like, of the way we're doing it? And COVID has given us an insight into stacking up the facts of the way we teach and the way we're running classrooms. Is this actually, when we stack it up, the right interpretation of the way things can be done? And I think that's the question that we should be asking. 
Yeah, and the answer is no. <laughs> thanks for that. You know, thanks for teeing that one up. Definitely not. Definitely not. But uh, and 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 I think it was Ben actually. We were talking about this the other day that um, I think it was on. I don't know what news channel, but the guy who looks after assessments or an awarding body, and and he was asked the question of, okay, so our exam, the exams, the way that we've set it up, the system, the exam system, is that the right thing? You've then got this fifty-year-old bus guy then say, yeah, because I like exams at school. <laughs> Is that, is that how we're basing our education system? For me, I'm just like some 50-year-old white guy um, that's probably been to a, a certain type of school that, yes, that one person might have liked exams, but what about maybe the rest of his class, even back then? And and that shocks me that actually, if that's the way that we're basing our education system on one person's opinion and one very um, specific person's, I'm just like, we, we clearly get it wrong. Clearly. Off the balance, because then we have to test people. There has to be some kind of fair way of saying this is good, or I don't know, this is. There has to be some. I guess that's always my question. I think what is a better way to do it? But I get, I, me personally, at school, if mum and dad are listening, I'm really sorry. I didn't actually advise for my GCSEs because I just didn't seem to be important. And I I was predicted decent grades. I didn't get the grades I was predicted because I kind of tapped out at some point because I just, in my own head, maybe probably my own arrogance, I was just like, I just don't, I just don't know what this is going to do for my life. I, I can't, I can't, I'm not understanding the urgency that everyone's telling me. Saying, I just don't get it. And, you know, scraped through with enough to go to college, went to college and just got there and was just massively underwhelmed by what was going on. I was just like, what? I don't. Did you go to Leeds? No, just joking. Just joking. Just joking. <laughs> I was in Birmingham. I was massively underwhelmed. The teaching was mediocre i thought the teachers were bored i was bored i was like we're all bored what is the point in carrying on with this charade you know i may as well go and get a job and earn some money which is what i went on to do because i just didn't feel that they were invested in what they were doing or invested in me actually probably more of what i didn't feel and so i was just kind of like well i reckon i'll be all right and there was but i didn't go on to study some more <laughs> but i think there was just something in me that was felt a sense of what is this system all about so for me are exams the right way I don't think so there needs to be something but that just was not motivating to me and it wasn't because I was smart I was I was predicted A's I was smart but I just checked out yeah and we we, uh, we are on that we beat that drum quite a lot about exams and about endpoint assessments to oh, we, we, we do beat that drum and it's it's interesting to actually hear about somebody else other than and and, and to be fair I did okay in my exams, but only because I was that was bred into me as a system of the way it should be. Um, but looking looking at it now, I think to myself, it's just 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 not right. It's also not it's not equitable or fair because there's some people that are particularly good at that and then at memory. And actually, I, like I have, I do this talked about this example quite a lot. I did Latin GCSE because I went to a particular type of school. I did Latin A level because I also went to stay at that particular type of sixth form. And 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 like I learned all these fifteen hundred words that I could conjugate left, right, and centre. Do I look at any of them now? Nope. Can I remember any of it now? So then it's I've not learned it. I've just memorised it. Memorised. So, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, my parents both have degrees. So I'm from a family that prides education. My dad will be crying. I don't think we've never told him this, but we <laughs> were really for education. But it just was not something that I just didn't. I just did not feel invested in it. I just, I just didn't see what it had to do with me. 
No one made that end exam mean something to me as a milestone of life. It just was a thing that everyone was getting highly excited about. Just before I do go on, uh, my uh, old friend, uh, Jonathan Orach, he's actually a a classics and Latin teacher now, I think. Uh, (laughs) I I did Latin and classics with him, A-levels, so he still looks at them, he said. So uh, (laughs) thanks for listening, Johnny. Uh, But yeah, um, it's not that I don't like Latin and classics. Honestly, I loved it. I was going to do that at university. I just think now maybe... But yeah, um, I'm, I'm I'm glad that it still works for someone. I think um, I think what I'm I'm really passionate about, uh, and and we've we've talked a lot on the podcast as well about um, Matthew Said's book Rebel Ideas and about cognitive diversity. In fact, I've just started reading another new book, uh, which I think is going to be one of my favourites. I, I have a new favourite every week. These lads are last. It's called Upstream by um, by Dan Heath. It's the guys who wrote Power of Moments, Made to Stick. And he's t- he talks about like diversity and thinking about starting things upstream. And I wondered whether we can get into that today about like um, he uses the example of Expedia and just just humor me for a minute as I tell the story. And he tells a story basically of um, Expedia are set up as a company who um, were trying to do on booking holidays online. That's what the, the, that's what they're trying to. So they didn't need a travel agency. It was done online. But 58 percent of people who booked a holiday online made a phone call to Expedia. And so they argue, so then so then what they tried to do is reduce the amount of time that people spent on a call because they wanted to be efficient and they were getting targets and they were meeting targets and bonuses by how quickly they resolved an issue. And then somebody came in, a diverse way of thinking, whatever whether that was somebody new or whatever else, and he just said, surely the issue is not how long the um, how long the call is, but why do they need a call at all? Yeah. If it's an online system... And so they went from trying to be reactive about the issue to going and being like upstream and thinking more proactive. What do we do to stop this problem happening, continuing? And I'm, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm thinking, obviously, from, a, from an education point of view and, 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 and even socially and everything, all the things that we can get into today about that level of cognitive diversity, as well as, as, well as an understanding that probably we need to think about um, – the the beginning rather than or how we start rather than just firefighting all the time because i guess my question is in the in the setting up of the system and of course you know you can't just ask kids well what do you want to do because they're probably going to be like well we just want to do real coursework but you know i think when we're setting these things how are we including people in what is essentially their own destiny how are we making sure that actually like you say it's about equity how are we making sure that we're actually really listening to young people who have been through the system and who are going through the system and who will go through the system and looking at the needs of end goal? So end goal of education is to get a job, let's say. That's the, that's the ultimate end goal is that you then join society and become a useful member of it. Um, well, if that's the end goal, then we also need to talk to um, managers about the young people that we get coming through. And what are the issues that we're facing into? Where are the gaps? So I've managed several teams of millennials, and I can definitely tell you where some of the gaps are. <laughs> and that is, n- those are not gaps that are going to be solved by exams. Because exams don't help you move through the world. They just don't. Because work does not work like that. So you don't go to work, and then they keep testing you continually <laughs> to test your competency. They expect you to do the job. And so there's something about the way that schoolwork is memorized as you say rather than outworked that needs to be looked at because actually 
what are the skills that are going to actually help people in the work workplace, but also assess their work as they're going through and what could that look like? Yeah, I, th I think it brings on to, to two things, really, in terms of um, I've been, yes, Ben, you'll be proud of me. I've been reading a book. Um, so ben, ben will laugh because it's not it doesn't happen often. Uh, going back to something that I've read before, uh, Sprint, looking at empathy models, looking at that whole element of stakeholder engagement, asking people, asking not a, a massive cut across in terms of the demographic that you're approaching. So how many times, let's be honest, has anybody actually asked from a government level the students in terms of what they want for their education. Has a school really done that? Have they brought them in? Have they brought a, a, a real approach of all of the students as well, not just the ones who were sitting ex the exams this year? Um, but it re it's really interesting because we had, I think it was Matt Lees, um, on talking about the holistic approach to education, not just about the what and the knowledge-based curriculum that we're so focused on, but actually the whole wraparound of the skills. We call them independent learning skills, those communication, critical thinking, collaboration. As somebody who's in this industry, and I know that you're trying to, build a, your own new company which we might touch on if we're allowed to going forward what kind of stuff are you, if, if somebody asked you what would you be looking for in terms of that somebody who's coming out of school from education to, to employment i think the the thing that's amazing to me is that actually people come to the workplace not with an attitude to learn so there's obviously something about the school system that is not helping people to love learning and to love change. So they come out, start a job, and the expectations of what they think they're going to be doing and the gap of what they need to learn to actually get to that place is actually quite quite vast. And so you're in a space where it seems they come out not liking authority or not liking being cr critiqued um, and hearing criticism and receiving, okay, well, this is where this could improve, this is where this could be better. Um, because a lot of that comes from your own self wanting to evolve your craft and, and to learn more. So there's obviously something that's going on as people go through the system that makes actually quite resistant to that and actually very persistent in feeling like coming into the office is working and it's not. <laughs> so, you know, you're getting, I went to work today, not the same as working. It's, um, you arrived today and had some conversations and some coffee. It's not the same as actually doing your job. And so, I think there's something intrinsic in the, in, in the education system that actually people can't wait to leave. And what a shame is that, that some people just can't wait to, to finish so that they can get out into the real world. Well, actually, this is the real world and this is part of life. So how are we actually encouraging children to fall in love with learning and the process of learning and the process of evolving rather than just, as you say, moving them through a stages of assessment where you're pressuring them, pressuring them, pressuring them to hit a milestone, relax. Pressure, 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 hit the next of the milestone, relax. Um, we need to fix the soft skills as well in the education system because a lot of students, they, they come with no soft skills. So they, they don't know how to do conflict. They don't know how to discuss. Um, they don't know a, a, lot of this, a lot of the critical thinking because they are being asked to memorize, memor memorize things, is that the right word? I can't even speak now. Yeah, it is. Um, they're, they're actually not, like you said, they're not learning them and they're not understanding the mechanics of how their own mind works in terms of remembering and learning and, and, and finessing and pivoting. So they, they struggle to do a lot of those things, which actually makes them 
for want of a better word, God bless them, terrible employees, because these are all things that you all know in your jobs. Sometimes your boss comes to you and says, oh, I know you're doing all these things, but now I need you to do this. And you need to do it. But there's something in that's like, but no, I'm here to do this. Because there's something about the education that's so rigid, it, it brings a rigidity that is not useful for life in general, because life is just not like that. So how can we help people to fall in love with the mechanics of their mind, the mechanics of how learning works, how evolving works, you know, and how life changes and make them comfortable with change, not just the change of moving from one assessment to the next, because you're not going to do that when you leave school. It just, it just, there's no job like that. Yeah, and 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 I think that's evident, and and I know schools are, are in it at the minute, but it's, it's this whole thing of the government agenda that schools are closed. That well, actually, online learning has been taking place for a long time, and I'm, I don't, <laughs> don't want to bash the government. That's not what I'm here to do. But but um, but alongside that, then this whole approach of um, a lot of colleges just saying, well, actually, because exams are not happening anymore, um, does learning need to happen? But it's that, and that really what you just said to me in terms of that passion for learning. We talk about training. We talk about these different things. We want to and people who want to be lifelong yeah. learners. People who are passionate about their their craft. We find and in education because of the way we set up, we don't find people's passions early enough. We've had Rob Hoban on from the Agora School where he asked them what they want to learn, and I think that's so important because it's like right, you're going to learn maths and you're going to learn English and you're going to learn this. Well, actually. I'm not great at maths and probably I'm, I might need a bit, but I've got everything on my phone that generally I need and, I, and I'm a bit older. So literally I can, I can do it. But How I found my usefulnesses of that? So, okay, you yeah. don't like maths, but here's, the, here's what maths is useful for. And so I can yeah. justify to you why it's a good idea for you to just learn mental arithmetic. Mental arithmetic is something that I still use, <laughs> like, which is something that I was actually all right. I was terrible at math, so I could do mental arithmetic. But how do we encourage people to be like, okay, you really don't like this. Let's explore your passions. Of course, you want to focus on those. Let's explore the things that you need. You need to also focus on these for these list of very good reasons. And it's like someone said, you know, we're not equipping our children to debate and accept the world's difference. There's like loads of things in the world. You don't get to do what you want to do all the time. Sometimes you have to do what you what you have to do. This is also part of life. How can we get the blend so that, you know, like you say, no one at school ever really said you could be a newsreader. It just, because that's actually not on the career person's mind, actually, because they will also have their own limited view of what careers are out there. They, you can't know what you don't know. And so I remember when I got to the newsroom, and you're like, oh my gosh, there's all these jobs. Even when you're studying journalism at uni, as I did, they don't tell you about, you don't really learn about all the jobs. Oh, so there's marketing jobs here, there's comms jobs here, there's sales jobs here, there's sound, there's audio, there's cameramen, there's news readers, there's, there's like a whole world in worlds. How do we get to match students with these things when it's on nobody's radar? And having a careers day, <laughs> once in their lifetimes of school is not really going to um, explore that. But if you can help people to, like you say, discover their passions, show them there's a fit for it out there, but also that there's these other list of things that are useful and handy too, you would, people would be more sold on their own education. I wasn't sold on my education because I couldn't see how this was, I couldn't see where this was all going and I couldn't see what was gonna happen next. So I think for me, it's important that we help students to see where education fits in their life, like their whole life, and not just these 
you'll regret this when you leave. Like I'm sure you've probably all yourselves used those teacher lines that you heard and you were like, I hate this person. And then you find that you are that person. (laughs) (laughs) The bell's for me, not for you. That was my favourite one. (laughs) (laughs) I remember they were like teacher lines. You find yourself saying them. But cliches are cliches because they're true. So the things they're saying are are not not true. But it's just, yeah, it's about helping someone understand how this fits in with the rest of their life and not making it seem like this thing that you've got to endure until you get to leave and then you get to go. So we need to make learning a a place that excites people to be there and to be learned and to learn. Yeah, we were, I think we were talking about this the other day. It's like, it's almost like we've put the the cart before the horse when it comes to education, and that we don't we don't open up those opportunities. And there are some, there are some schools out there that are doing a, who yeah. who, are, who are providing an amazing model um, to a certain extent. The uh, the UTCs they they bring businesses in. They have um, they um, what they do is they specialize in having right what what's kind of the emerging uh, industries in this area where the school is based. Well, why don't we? Why don't we like in the, in Newcastle? There's uh, medical sciences is like is is kind of the next big thing. It's one of the biggest growing industries. So the UTC in Newcastle uh, brings one of the biggest medical science businesses, their chair, in to be chair of their board of governors, yeah. uh, and then brings other businesses in, and then the the the. They do that. They each have a mentor. So students will have a mentor from business, uh, from the day they come in to the day they leave, um, and it's just it all. It may, but the the thing is, you know, it makes sense. It, yeah. Like, it I, like it, it. It makes the most. It, like, why aren't we doing this already? And I think it, it always comes back to. And we've we've had this conversation already, but it comes back to to that endpoint assessment. It comes back to uh, we've put the cart before the horse, and yeah. and and and. It worries me because I think schools are getting better and better and better at um, getting students ready for exams. And you just have to look at the statistics. So um, how many students are getting um, A A stars or eights and nines as as GCSEs are measured now? Each year goes up, goes up, goes up to the point where the government have to to make them harder. Yeah. Have to make them harder harder because... But when does that end? As schools get better and better and better, preparing parents, students for a three-hour exam with a paper booklet in a hall somewhere, ha, ha, it's not going to end well, is it? It's it can't end well. There's no job where that happens. There's there's not a job in this world that you would do that to someone. And then when they've done it and they get a grade and they don't have to work ever again, it's it's, it's completely different to the way that we live life. And school is meant to prepare us for life. And back in the day when people were working with paper booklets um, because there was no computers, I can see how this might have had some relevance when it was more admin and secretarial work and different things like that. But the world's moved on and jobs have moved on and robots are doing that now. So we don't need people to train for that because we've got, we've got a robot for that. What we need people to be trained in is other things. And so how has the curriculum advanced to actually prepare people for the changing world? And it hasn't. And I guess for me, the question I'm asking a lot at the moment of different people in different spaces is why are we sweeping this under the carpet? 
because obviously everyone knows there's a problem. The government can't not know. People can't. Not, we all know. We all know this is not this is not working. There's there's no one saying this is amazing. Well, besides that one guy, there's no one saying this is amazing. We know it's not working. So when we're sweeping things under the carpet, who then the DFE think it is. <laughs> That's the truth. The truth is, they do. They do. I know I've said it controversial. They do think it is. Tom, Tom Bennett they... sits at the top and he says it worked. Exams work. We should do this. Do they? Do they? You know, I, I, I can't. I can't think they're the only people who haven't heard the cries of employers also saying we we don't. People are leaving school without skills. Is that if what it's going to take? Because my is always who benefits if we sweep things under the carpet and we don't deal with stuff who benefits and who's damaged well, certain, by it certain individuals are getting paid four million pound a year to to, to 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 do that so somebody's definitely benefiting but i don't think it's the kids because unless mum and dad are giving 10 pound for an a and five quid for a b like they used to do or a number then uh unfortunately <laughs> I, I got i got these so, so i didn't get no money so not even from the two <laughs> me. you had your parents so, money <laughs> I, I, think, I, think I am literally These are the questions I would like to see educators asking because this is where the gap is. Because for me, someone is benefiting, someone is being damaged, and I'm a big fan of social justice. I'm a massive fan of social justice as a journalist. In my heart, I am a fan of calling things out and speaking truth. And I think for me, there is obviously clearly here a truth that needs to be spoken. And when people strike, people don't understand why. Because all people see is we hear nothing, 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 nothing. Teachers are going on strike. Oh God, they get enough holidays as it is. The kids are always off and on. You know, so in that space, and this is where I think communication has a big part to play. How, and this was the kind of the thing that I said when we all met that first day. Educators have an amazing cause and a righteous cause, and for many of the right reasons, but it's not being communicated. So we don't see that. We just see the strike, or we just see a teacher's training day, or we just see the exam board, or we just see the DFE. And I feel like educators actually have probably a really strong case to appeal to the public, because in the end, the main thing that changes is when a lot of people get together and make enough of a noise. And I think we can look and we can feel how we feel about what's going out on the streets of, of London and many cities at the moment. We can feel how we feel. But I tell you what, people are paying attention. Now people are talking about stuff. Now we're seeing change because I'm quite a reasonable person. So I'll always be more like, well, you should just really have a conversation and try and see what you can do. But I also recognize that my language of ultra reasonableness cannot crack the conversation wide open in a way that's meaningful, that people who are outside of certain spaces will get to hear it. And so my thing, my challenge, I guess, if I can challenge educators is, is how are you communicating the change that you know we need to see because I think actually the public every manager for god's sake will get behind you (laughs) because they'll all be like stop churning out these entitled kids um so you know you were just bored so you know I think that there's there would be a groundswell behind educators for change because we all know it needs to happen but I think no one's quite calling out what the injustice is and who's benefiting from it not changing and I think that's something that needs to happen I think I love um, I love what you have been talking about on on social media um, as well recently about the things that need calling out uh, yeah. and uh, what I, what we're what we're really pleased about is that you've come on and talked to us about some of the things that that need to change and it's, this is not just we're not talking about education just 
uh, on its own because I think education is the, is the vehicle, isn't it? Yeah. Um, or one of the vehicles that we need. Um, I, I would love you just to talk about some of that before we get into. We've got some great questions in the chat <laughs> we want to put through as well. But just just love you to talk about the because you talked about communicating for a change yeah. and that actually that's what you're passionate about social justice and equity. Let, I'm so yeah. passionate. You know, as a black woman, I can't sit here and tell you that through education, I felt that the education system was was understanding me and where I was coming from, because it was not. And, you know, I am someone who's had diverse teams and I've been in teams that are not diverse that are. And I can tell you the deep pain of not being understood. And so, you know, as much as we need to call out the system, also we need to call out ourselves on understanding our pupils all of them and especially the pupils that are not like us because that's always the hardest thing to do you know I my niece and I mean she is like very smart she's very very smart always been smart so she refused meat from like a child wouldn't eat any meat so she was just like no I don't want it and you know she went to school very well nursery very articulate and this nursery teacher was just just had a big problem with it and we cannot ignore the unconscious biases that live in us all, including me. So I'm not called, this is not like a, a white person's problem exclusively. This is like, we all have unconscious biases. And it is on us as people who are shaping and guiding people who are essentially semi-blank canvases. And the way that they are educated and the way that they are treated at this more vulnerable end of life is gonna have a massive impact on how they move through the rest of the world. Now, I have parents who were very strong on helping us understand a strong sense of self. Not just a race thing, a class thing also. There are many children who do not come from homes that are able, for whatever reason, to instill that strong sense of self in someone. So when they come to school, you are the authority and it's so tricky because I can't even imagine how tough it is to be an educator because you've got so much going on um, so much going on and this is why I think it's a shame the way the system's gone the way it's gone because what it's taken the attention off is the for want of a better word pastoral care to be able to understand people who are not like you and who are looking to you for something because all children are looking for is acceptance, bottom line. They are looking to be accepted, looking to be seen. And when children do not feel seen, they do not have the reasoning and they do not have the mental ability to be able to converse in certain ways because they just don't and so they will be rude. And in a world where we know more but we have less time, it can be very easy just to turn away from that because it's a lot to look into. And I remember speaking to a lady at my um, old church and she was like, oh, these kids, you know, they're just from these deprived backgrounds. And she's like, you know, they're just so rude and they just answer back. And, and I said, oh, okay, but you need to see every child as a seed and how you treat them, you will either water them or you will kill them because essentially that's what's going on here. And this is a question for us as society around young people and the value that we do not place on them. And the way, like you said, they are not listened to. They are not included in the conversations about their education. They're not included in their own outcomes. And so all the time, all we're saying is, you don't matter. What you're saying doesn't count. Um, we don't want to hear from you. 
And then we want them to go into the world and somehow be responsible adults who are going to contribute to society in a meaningful way. Can we see where the gap is? There's a huge gap in that. So often that child that is just totally insolent <laughs> is just the softest person probably who just is doesn't is hurting. And it's so hard because I'm having a very idealistic, romantic view, as many people come in with, and I and I don't know the challenges when you're in the room. But what I do know is how some of the incidents, even that I suffered, not suffers of strong word, some of the things that I went through with different teachers at different times could have affected me very differently if I didn't have the parents and the home life that I had. But because of that, it was kind of a bit more water off a duck's back. But literally, you hear adults talking about things their teacher said to them all the time. So the offhand comments that we make and the offhand things that we say have a much more far-reaching effect. And it's imperative that we try to be as generous as we can in all things. And kind of like lastly, my sister was having my same niece honestly she's had a few issues at school um, and she's not bad she's just very smart and very inquisitive so she was always talking to the teacher for the class and he said oh I love her because she helps me put out chairs but you know in the class she's just you know really thing and I try and talk to her and she doesn't listen my sister said well she's a child <laughs> you have to remember although she can have an adult conversation she's a child and you're expecting her to act like an adult when you reprimand her and she can't she's a child and so as much as children may act adult, especially in further and higher education, their reasoning's not even in yet, but they don't know that, but you do. And so when we are expecting people to act in a certain way, especially when we're culturally different, just understand that there are some reactions that are going to come across in a way that you find challenging. But when you dig down to the root of it, for a lot of young black people, authority outside of their home is something that is challenging and threatening. And so when you tell them off, they feel defensive because they feel like I am threatened. I'm going to get kicked out. I'm going to get expelled. I'm going to look at all the stats that you see flying around the news all the time. This is what's going through their mind when they're being told off about something that might be fairly simple. And so how can we look into different people, different cultures and try to understand sometimes where the reactions are coming from? and understand how we can be part of the change in their life of helping them to understand that you are you're a valuable member of society and i'm not perfect i'm a teacher but i'm also human so i'm not going to get this all right so let's just all work together to try and come to a good end and i just think finally i just know there's so many teachers who just don't de-escalate in my case anyway you're the adult i'm the child i might be rude but i'm still the child how can you de-escalate these situations as they arise and not escalate it with me because I'm stupid. You know, when you're young, you're too silly. So, of course, I'm going to escalate it. Be the adult, you know, yeah. be the change. Yes. Yeah. It's challenging. And I'm not saying it's easy. This and, is like, and, it's easy to say in the room, but in the moment, always more tricky. I, and, I, and I totally understand that. Yeah. And I think as, as a, for the college I work for, but I'm also a chair of governors at um, a primary school and, and they're a part of a trust. And, they use restorative practice in terms of an approach, um, in terms of that. That, and I've I've seen it, you know, from from teachers quite a few years ago, where it's like, well, I'm the teacher, I'm telling them what to do. And it's like sometimes you, you, it's not about winning, you know, you're the adult. Actually, the winning is 
just the fact that you might have to go away and the student might have to calm down. But as an adult, you can actually control your behaviour maybe a little bit better in terms of managing it. But actually, I, th I think there definitely is. And it's that authoritarian, uh, authoritarian approach for, for a lot of teachers. Oh, no, I've, I've got to have the power. If I see that actually I've taken a step back, that actually I've lost that. It's not how loud you can shout for me. I think it's about a very different approach and it's an understanding um, I, I work in an organisation that is, is very diverse and, and over 50% of our learners come from very deprived backgrounds. And, and I want to cover a couple of things in terms of it around yeah. inner city um, and, and the, 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 the label that that gets, but also um, some great stuff uh, that's been brought to attention by my team around equity. So I don't know if it, the whole thing of, right, you ask a, yeah, you, you ask a, you ask a teacher why a student is not, learning online or, or if you talk about a blended model and say and they say they're not motivated they're not interested well maybe they are because it might be the fact that they're what you're delivering but also <laughs> when you ask a student and this we've done this it actually could be about many different things in terms of connectivity device their learning environment oh we've given out chromebooks or whatever and, and they've got something to work on but what you've got to remember is they might have five children in a household that are actually all vying for the chromebook yeah, that one yeah. chromebook that you've lent them yeah, and, and, and that element in terms of it is 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 tequity is a massive thing, I think. And 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 I, I don't think as adults we and, and, and I come from a working class background, you know, and, and everything else. My my dad originally worked down the pit. Um and, and we and I and I don't get it. I, I still think actually, you know what, compared to some of the children that and, and kids that we work with, I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. But how can how can mm -hmm. I listen to them and how can we spread our audience and our, my network to make sure I am listening and I understand it. Because if you haven't come from that, uh, in terms of that deprivation, how do you understand it? Uh, and, and that's a really interesting thing for me that I'm during lockdown, I'm thinking I need to be better with it, 100%. I don't know how I went there. And but it's hard. It's <laughs> no, these are the questions that people are now asking themselves. Clearly, there are movements out there going on, and I don't even know what I don't know. How do I close this gap so I even know what to be asking, looking for, to understand? And I think it's really tricky. I remember once I was going to deliver a workshop in a school, and my my younger sister, she's a way better human being than me, and I was like, right, because what I want to tell them is that if they want to earn this many K per year, and my sister was like, whoa, 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 whoa. She was like, for some of these people, their parents don't work, and their parents before them didn't work. They're not thinking about per annum pay <laughs> they're thinking about weekly money and so she was like you need to bring this down to a language where they'll understand how it's more than what they're getting right now otherwise just abstract numbers because you know I grew up in a house where both my parents worked and blah blah blah, blah. so my thinking is a certain way and I'm having to a lot myself try to understand more where other people are coming from so I follow uh, purposefully lots of different people on Instagram and I and Twitter, Twitter especially. I follow people that I really don't agree with and I'm trying to not turn away when I see, and sometimes I'm like, I am definitely gonna unfollow this person today. I can't believe they think this, but I have made myself keep following and not, and, and, and to see people as the sum total of what they are rather than on one issue. And one of the theories in my book is around communication. So I decided to call the most right wing person that I follow on Twitter and have a conversation with them to see if my theory was true that more of us have a lot more in common than we think we do. And it's the barrier that we think is like this is actually like that. And with talking to him, there were definite different disagreements, of course. He's quite right wing. 
but there was actually, we had a lot more in common in terms of values, principles, and the way that we see the world. And sometimes it's because we feel like there's this big high barrier to entry. And actually sometimes the barrier is quite low of just, can we have a conversation? And when we actually pitch the bar that low, it's actually very easy for everyone to enter. And when I was running a TV channel, I used the same thing. I say to people, let's lower the barrier to entry for these programs. It was, you know, Christian faith channel is very, 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 very right wing Christian. <laughs> let's lower this bar to entry. If you want more viewers, you can't make it so niche. And the thing about school is school is en masse. It's, it's plenty. It's volume. So how can we lower that bar to entry? How can we um, help students also to understand more about peer-to-peer -peer support? Whereas we can't, you can't be everywhere, but how can we make children more sensitive to each other and understanding each other and having safe spaces to talk and to share? Now, children are naturally loose-lipped, so <laughs> that doesn't always work. But how, how are we encouraging young people as well to gain the tools that you need through life to get through stuff, which is by talking and sharing and, and different things. So I think it's really interesting. I don't have all the answers, but I guess it's just more, you know, from an outsider's point of view, you kind of look in and you, and you your heart kind of breaks for some young people who are clearly disadvantaged and don't know how to, to change their circumstance and, and, and feel quite hopeless. And I think that's heartbreaking. Yeah. And there's, there's there's a lot of things going on at the minute and and i guess it'd be great to get into kind of um and i know you you're very vocal about um the black lives matter movement on yeah. social media and 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 kind of it'd be there's a there's a there's kind of this change in the air for, yeah. for want of a better phrase and um and i'm going to bring uh jamie uh, our good friend jamie smith uh in here because he's asked a question about how for you, for you, twenty twenty is a crossroads uh, oh, yeah. for global equality. Is 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 it, or is it as Jamie's saying there? Is it gonna, is it largely tokenistic virtue signal? And he's got a second question there. We can come on to. So for me, for the virtue signalers, I think they are now understanding that change is actually here. Because <laughs> I think in the beginning, everyone was like, "We'll post our black square on Instagram." we're muting, you know, we're doing all of these things, we're listening. And I think what people have realized is actually people have a lot of energy for this change this time around. And I think there's a couple of things that have led to it being so. And I think one of the things is COVID and the fact that we're all home. Everyone's home. We have got nowhere else to be apart from if you're a key worker. There's no restaurants, there's no cinemas, there's no spare time in essence, apart from the park. And that only works on a good day. So we're all in. And so when all the injustices that are currently happening, and I think they're happening in lots of different spaces, including politics, by the way, but we'll stick to Black Lives Matter, because um, I like to keep a part-time job. But um, we had nowhere to turn. So when this video of George Floyd comes, you can't watch that on the news and then go out for dinner. There's no way of turning away from it because we're in. And so as a country, as a, as a world almost, and definitely the Western world, we've had to just face into this together. Now, I know for some people, the term Black Lives Matter is very confronting. And they say, well, all lives matter. And all lives do matter. No one's saying all lives don't matter. What we're saying is we're seeing a disproportionate injustice against black people at the moment. And so we feel that we need to highlight this. As people say, it's like being at someone else's funeral and they're saying, we love this guy, 
well, my dad died, you know, <laughs> okay. But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about this person today. We're honoring this person today. And I think where people find that confronting, and look, there are far more clever people to speak on, <laughs> on this than me, professors of black studies and stuff. But I think for me, I always think when I want to turn away from something, I need to face something inside. As I said, like with these people I follow who are really right wing, I find it challenging because it challenges what I think about myself. It challenges how I see the world and it's challenging my norms, the things I have built my life upon, the structures of thoughts and, and, and ideals. And here is someone who's saying that is rubbish. It doesn't count for anything. That is very confronting. Um, part of what I'm talking about in my book is that we don't talk about, we talk about white privilege in a way that I think it doesn't exactly explain what it is. And the current single narrative around white privilege is white people strong and bad and black people poor and helpless and I just have a bit of a struggle with that narrative and I think we need to explore what privilege means more deeply and white privilege is part of privilege but it's not the sum total because by that analysis every single white person I've ever walked by in my life has more privilege and power than me well, that obviously can't be true because like in this world, it's, it can't be true. Or maybe that's my own advanced ego. But, um, you know, so for me, I think we need to bring more nuance to this conversation. We need to bring more complexity to this conversation. But what we can never, ever lose sight of is that injustice really should not be tolerated in this society at this point in time. And wherever we see it, we should be dismantling it. And we cannot be still holding people, a whole group of people back based on skin color. Um, and for me, I'm all about, I'm not letting anyone off the hook with that. Like, it's just, it's, it's like, it's unacceptable to me. And so for me, part of what I choose to do is to advance these conversations in spaces because I think some of it is around communication. But I equally accept without condoning <laughs> is that the protests, all of what's going on, has cracked open a conversation that we've been needing to have for a really long time and now we're having it but it's on everyone to actually open not just their ears but for all of us to open our hearts and say what's the issue here and how are we going to face into it and I am sure I mean, I have lots of thoughts and I'm writing a book so I'm trying to be careful about what I say but the thing about it is is we need a fairer world for everybody and education is a great starting point but if it goes wrong at that early stage then people are you're building a rocky foundation and anything built on a rocky foundation just cannot stand so it's important that in these conversations and we can discuss statues and we can discuss things and we can discuss all of that but i think as we are, as you say, school's not closed, school is still on, it's just in a different way, and learning is still happening where it can. But where you have black students, you have to be alive to the fact that this is a live conversation that's happening and they are going to have feelings about this. They're going to have feelings about their education and their educators, and they're gonna have feelings about whether or not they think they have agency in that space and whether they are free to speak up and whether there is racism happening or all the other little things and about understanding that racism is not just saying the n-word racism is you know not like the question around grading exams the statistics all show that black children are often undergraded by their own teachers we cannot turn away from this 
It's not the time for people to feel defensive because as I said, we're the adults. So this is not the time for us to feel defensive about ourselves. It's time for us to worry about the students that we say we're here for. And so in this moment, how do we make sure that we face into this and that we are asking ourselves those hard questions? The thing for me is, if you ask yourself the hard question, it avoids anyone else having to ask you the hard question, which is always better in my book. And I would prefer to do my own soul searching around these things and for someone else to be calling it out in me. But equally, we must also remember, if someone is saying that there is racism or calling you racist, let's say, you have to just look inside about what is this person saying and what am I missing and what am I not seeing? Because for most people, they're not going to say that for zero reason. And whether or not it's all valid, you know, and this is the other thing, there's a danger in a single story, in a single narrative. Um, but as the adults in a society that is mainly white and mainly geared towards mainstream, it's not a lump, it's not a jump and a skip to understand that this could be happening. Um, if you see a packet of crisps blowing down the road, you know it's the wind, you can't see it, but what else could it be? <laughs> if, there's, if there's nothing pushing it across, then what else, it's, it's, it's obvious we make these conclusions. And so this is no different. If we know that racism exists, if we know that we live in a structurally unjust world for lots of reasons, not just race, class, gender, sexuality, whatever you want to say, then we can't always say, well, it must be going on out there and not in me. Like, how, how, how can we say that? Because then somehow you are not human and everyone else is making mistakes. And what I get is that that is challenging and it's very confronting. Like when someone says to me, you're too strong, you're mean. Well, that's confronting to me because of course I don't think of myself as a mean person. Of course I think I'm reasonable. Everyone thinks they're reasonable. Of course no one thinks they're racist or sexist or anything else. But the very fact of our humanity means these biases do reside in us. And it's to how much we actually temper our natural impulses just to be yourself. And I interviewed someone the other day, she said she thinks that's actually catastrophic advice sometimes to be yourself. Better to know yourself than be yourself sometimes. And to admit, do you know what? Sometimes when I see my black students, I find them difficult. Acknowledge that in yourself and think about where that's coming from and assess their what? behavior. Is it really difficult or are you perceiving it to be difficult? Yeah, I like that. I think that's like, if I, I want to put that on like a, a cheesy meme template and post it out. Uh, <laughs> sometimes you don't put yourself more yourself. <laughs> um, no, but it's good. It's good stuff. Um, uh, um, I like. I, I do really like that. Um, it. I think. I think the danger comes, especially in education, is when um, when those biases uh, become, let's say, it becomes solid and be, and and manifest itself in a textbook, for example. So, so like like I'm just thinking like. Even today, this is this is not even when I was at school, which is a long time ago. Today, we we almost teach teach um, what like what's going on today. We we teach it in a way like oh, it, it's something that happened uh, when Martin Luther King was around, and and he solved it, and he he. One, three guys, and yeah, and that's it, like, he the mountaintop. <laughs> it's like uh, yeah, it was all solved back then, uh, and it, it's in a history textbook. His, like yeah. a, a history textbook means it's. It, once it's in there, it's consigned to history, um, yeah. and we we can we can take it out and look at look at it 
every now and then, uh, but we don't have to do anything about it. So I guess uh, if I'm going to formulate a question with this is, what kind of metaphorical statues do we not need to start pulling down within the education system? Do we need do we need to maybe think, you know what that needs we need we need to think about that that needs to come down, and we need to le- we need to level things up here. I think we need to remove some of the sanitization of history <laughs> that completely absolves majority people from any ill doing. There was an empire, but you know, guys, okay, we've got a few pictures of some brown people in straw skirts. They kind of went willingly. They've got a spear. They seem okay to me, um, you know. And then blah 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 blah. The abolition. Um, okay, well, that's like missing out a massive bit in the middle that we might want to explore. Um, and I think it's also in education about the actually probably the idol, and maybe I'm just reaching here of history itself. <laughs> history yeah. is what happened yesterday. So it's what happened 40 years ago. And actually, our thing of kind of of the way that we think of what history is it has to be something that happened way back when rather than Stephen Lawrence is actually part of our history at this point in time Mark Duggan is part of our history in those riots they were only a few years ago but they are actually part of our history how are we um educating people that many struggles still continue in many places the fact that actually in the last five years progress for women has gone backwards um, this is part of our history also very much part of our present and so I guess it's about how do we tell the truth of what of history um, not a perspective of truth but the truth and I get that the truth is always complicated because, as I say, the victor writes tends to write the tale. So, you know, it's not the lion that writes about his death and how he fought valiantly. It's the person who killed it and skinned it. So, you know, there is that aspect to it. But how can we get closer to a truth? And in this day, it's very hard because there's all kinds of truths around. Um, and also, how are we in our social science spaces and in those spaces that deal with sociology, not confining these things to the past either, but but talking about how we are today and the things that need to change today. And for me, the other thing about it is, is, you know, I'm not against Black History Month at all, but what it kind of does, it squeezes elements of history into one month of the year when we talk about it which for me that I prefer that it was interwoven into the fabric of who we are and equally to not just talk about slavery, but to talk about the successes. You know, how often do we hear about black inventors when we're talking about things that have been invented? How often do we hear about that when we learn about space? Do we learn about the three women who helped to, you know, put a man on the moon? It kind of goes back to media. I used to complain to my editor all the time. We only get black people on when it's about knife crime or gangs, you know, Chinese people go to the dentist, Polish people go to the doctors, <laughs> you know, all of these things that we talk about every day on the news, you can have anybody from everywhere because they're things that we all share in common. So where we all share things in common and we're teaching things around science, around history, around invention, around books, the books we choose to read, how are we just interweaving a global perspective? And we're in a really global world right now. That's the crazy thing, we've never been so global in our outlook, you know, China are fast becoming the, they are the new superpower, let's say. How are we understanding about their culture? How are we understanding about who they are as a people? Because in this global world, actually, it's never gonna be, it's never as critical as now to understand the way different cultures work, operate, what they respect. We need to interweave these things into who we are rather than a very British point of view, 
even if we are Brexiting. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Uh, we, we talked to David Price about that, about how we, we've never been at a more critical time where we need to be open and we need, we need to see things from other people's point of view. However, the politics has gone in completely opposite direction and we've ne- we've almost never been as polemic well at least for at least for quite a while i think we were have we got a few more questions we we want to put to janelle um i think you're muted ben this one uh, yeah, the technology thing, and maybe I need to learn some stuff about you technology. You uh, can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if they, I think they might mute me on purpose. No, I don't know. It would be. Um, I think this this idea is something that you, you talked about, and I, I feel like we should come back to maybe to wrap it around about whether about skills versus knowledge. Um, or whether we had a really great conversation, if anybody hasn't listened to it yet, a great conversation with Summer Howarth, who talked about it isn't either or. Um, yeah. But I wonder, what, wonder if you, yeah, sorry, if I've stolen. No, 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 you're right. We we need to live in a yes and world. We, at the moment, live in a no but. So it's kind of like, should it be knowledge or skills? Why can't we do both? You know, why, why, why are we tying ourselves? Why can we only be tethered to one thing at a time? Um, surely it's, it's both. People don't, people don't write letters these days. They write emails. And emails are constructed in a very different way and, and need a kind of different language. Um, so it's all good and well to teach people how to write letters. It's good to know. But that's not like a knowledge that you really kind of need in this world. Sorry, that's enough. But um, so, you know, I think you need knowledge, you need skills. We need to speak to employers about where the future of their industries are going so that we can understand what skills are going to be needed and, and speak to them and, and, and find out. Because I think the fact that the world is so siloed and we brought that into education like education's this siloed thing off to the side and then the workplace this siloed thing off to the side but i think there needs to just be a coming together of understanding of where's the world going what's the world looking like and how can we input that back into the curriculum through knowledge through skills but there are some soft skills that some young people do not have like having a conversation um you need to be able to interview for a job while you're not going to get one you have to have words, you know, you have to, you have to have language, you know, you have to be able to do these things. You have to know how to negotiate um, and to know also what's reasonable and to understand the job market. How are we helping people to understand that? You know, there's just so much that we leave school not knowing unless your parents tell you. And I don't want to put this all on teachers because I also don't think that's the way to go. I think society as a whole, we need to take more of the village approach to raising our young people. I, I definitely feel that. Um, but there will always be a proportion of children who don't have that at home. And so for those, we need to make sure that school and college and university is, is filling in those gaps. So we, it's a yes and, not either or. Uh, the reason the guys are smiling is uh, I have a punchline. Uh, and I don't know whether to deliver it. Um, I whenever we 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 wrap or anything else, I always I always say we could talk all night. Um, we have covered a massive spectrum in terms of education, communication, uh, diverse thinking, uh, and, and we've gone into some really nice uh, rabbit holes. Um, and and yeah, we 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 really appreciate you coming on, uh, sharing your thoughts, but also your honesty as well in terms of all that thing. Uh, 
we didn't want to touch too much upon the book because we don't want to <laughs> we don't want to give away all the chapters. But maybe at some point when that's out, we'd love to invite you back on. Um, and and yeah, thank, thank you very much for coming on. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, the hour and fifteen minutes have flown by. Hopefully, our audience have enjoyed it. Thanks, for um, I've me. absolutely loved it here. So thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks, Janelle. See you later. <laughs>